Turn with me, if you would, please. This thing made for long-necked people. Uh, to Acts chapter 5, John chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 13, Philippians 2. All about one thing. I'd like to say at the outset what an honor and a privilege it is to uh, stand behind this pulpit. This is a, a sacred place, a sanctified place, uh, not sacred in that it's like the Holy of Holies and God said make it, but it's a sanctified place because there are Bible-believing people who've set this little square place aside for the man of God to come and hold forth the Word of God. Many times I sat where you're set through the years, and I heard some of the greatest preachers that ever preached a sermon right from this pulpit. House packed, not a place to sit down, people standing all around. I've seen these altars filled. That was way back in the 80s. And it was operating a long time before I got here. So it's an honor and a privilege to me beyond what I can express. And I appreciate my pastor letting me uh, stand here where so many great men have stood and so many have preached the word. The one thing that I want to talk to you about tonight, and I'll show you where it is one thing, is that word charity. Charity. Um, we're so fortunate to have the King James Version of the Bible. And I'm not here to start an argument over versions because there is no argument this is it people used to say <clears throat> uh, God said it I believe it that settles it and they'd hold their King James book up but I'll tell you it's provable uh, you get that little book from Brother Coates back there in the bookstore he's ordered some of them uh, called Foundation and Authority and you will find out from an old saint that's long dead, Brother Bruce Cummins, where this Bible came from, how it got here, and just exactly why it deserves a place that we give it uh, as the Word of God. We have uh, noticed <clears throat> that People pray for revival, and yet what we would assume to be revival doesn't come. Uh, how many of you, probably older folks, you remember a real revival, just a runaway revival? Have you ever seen that? Not a hand. I've seen it twice in my lifetime. Unbelievable. It's, it's more than just people walking the aisles. It's a moving that it's almost like 
it's, it's just happening. Um, we had Brother Joe Boyd come and he spoke here years ago. I had him come and preach for us and we were running about, um, I don't know, three, four hundred in Sunday school at the time. And the first night, we had 160 people on Monday night. By Thursday night, we couldn't count them. And that week was over, we'd had 270 people walk the aisles and ask Christ to save them. 170 of them were adults. It, it, it was intoxicating. We didn't, we didn't know what to do. It was going on. I mean, it, and not only that, it changed people's lives. They didn't just get saved and, and go on back home. It actually changed their lives. They, they really changed their lives. So why is it that revival doesn't seem to come now? Ministry seems to be in slow motion a lot of times now. And uh, <clears throat> is it a fact that nobody's praying? I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Every preacher I know and their wives and every Christian I know, they're begging God for revival. We need it in our country, folks. We need it. Is it because... People aren't giving. Well, that's not true. We send over 100 missionaries out, and we pay our bills. Somebody's got to be giving. Is it because people aren't faithful to witness? I don't think so. We pass out a lot of tracts here. We have a lot of people giving people opportunities to be saved. We have door-knocking campaigns, go door-to-door, -door, just like did in the days of Acts, daily in the temple in every house. They ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. So that's not the reason. What, it, are men not preaching the word of God anymore? Uh, there, there are so many, pre, so many people preaching the word of God today and holding forth the truth of the word of God. And seemingly, it's falling on deaf ears. And why is that? Can you explain that to me? Now, I don't want to give the wrong idea. I don't want to be a defeatist. There's a lot going on that's good. You've got a couple like the Rogers that pack up at their age and go to a place like where they are now. I mean, somebody's right with God. Somebody's, somebody's willing to sacrifice. Somebody's doing it. And somebody's sending them. That, I mean, that's a great happening. Wouldn't happen without the blessings of the Spirit of God. We see people saved. We see this victory here uh, tonight. This recognition of a six-month uh, victory over addictions. That, that's, that's a blessing from God. So let me show you <clears throat> what I believe revival is. In the book of Acts, 
uh, chapter 2, um, and verse uh, 41. The Bible says, and they gladly received the word of God and were baptized that same day. They were added to them about 3,000. Now, in chapter 1, there was only 120 of them. And they said, well, that is the indwelling Holy Spirit that fell on them. Well, the indwelling Holy Spirit's on every born-again person here tonight, in every born-again person. So that's not unique. What well, isn't long then till... Up in verse 47, they were praising God with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Over in uh, chapter 4, and verse 4, it says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. How many women and kids got saved? Well, we're up to 8,120 people in just a few weeks. And on and on it goes throughout the book of Acts up to chapter 6, where it goes off talking about Stephen and then on to uh, Samaria and starts the, the spread of the church. But that right there will show you how many people, they, along about chapter 5, they quit adding to the church and started multiplying to the church. And it was multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. And some scholars think uh, by chapter 6, there were 30,000 members in the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And you can't hardly argue with them when you look at the way it was. Well, now, let's go back and see some things about this situation. Um, back over in, uh, in chapter 1, chapter 2, when Peter stood up to preach, um, hardly anybody knew who he was. And he preached a, not a very long sermon. And uh, all those people got saved. 3,000 people. Um, was it the preacher? I don't know. I don't think so. And then you see that uh, in verse 7, chapter 2, the people who were there and were ministering alongside Peter, it says they were Galileans. You know what Galileans were? They were rednecks or hillbillies. They weren't sorry people, but they weren't on the top echelon of society either. Then over in uh, uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, Peter told a man, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee. Now, it wasn't money. Then over in chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, Now 
when they saw that the, saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, and they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So it wasn't education. There's nothing wrong with education. Uh, back in the mountains where my family's from, back years ago, they used to say if a preacher had been to school, he was snake bit, and they wouldn't hire him. But Moses and Paul were extremely educated. They had two or three PhDs if they were alive today. And on and on and on it goes. There's nothing here materially that we would ordinarily uh, affiliate with a, with a great movement of God. So we see it wasn't money. It wasn't influence like that. They didn't have great wealth. And we've seen what revival looks like and what revival is not. Let's see what Jesus says about it. Go back to John chapter 15. He uses the metaphor of a vine and branches and fruit. Verse 1, he says, I am the vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. And then it's much fruit, fruit, much more fruit, much fruit. He wants a lot of fruit. And he wants the branches to bear that fruit. That's us. We're the branches. Jesus is the vine, he says. So why aren't we bearing, we might be bearing fruit, but are we bearing more fruit and much fruit? Well, see, I, I would think that if you were bearing much fruit, that'd be kind of like a revival, maybe. And he said in verse 4, he says, uh, verse 3 actually, Now ye are clean through the word. You can't be a fruit-bearing vine and have a bunch of fungus and disease in you. You got, you got to be living godly in Christ Jesus, biblically, according to the Bible, in order to have any kind of a testimony and any kind of a witness in you. So we want to bear more fruit and much fruit. We want to go from bearing fruit just bearing much more fruit. That would be better, wouldn't it? <clears throat> he said the Father prunes us. Now, most of the time we run up on a hard place, we don't think, well, maybe this is God pruning me, so I'll bear more fruit. Nah, we get down in the mouth and woe is me, and uh, I never have any good luck. It's just terrible. Maybe he's just trimming your branches a little bit. Maybe he's clipping your leaves a little bit. That's to be expected. And we need, anytime, anytime you have a situation, a problem or a trouble, you need to go to God in prayer and say, Lord, 
is this something that I need? Is this a character builder? Or is this something push me closer to the Holy Spirit of God? That's part of being a, a branch on a fruit-bearing vine. But it gets down to 15, 12, and 17. Let's look at that. 15, 12, he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another. And in 17, These things command I you, that you love one another. Now you notice in verse 12, commandment is singular. Singular. When I taught Brother Bielman's class the other day, I talked about the law. And Jesus said, the law shall not pass away until the end of time, every jot and tittle, not, not a bit of it will ever pass away. So how come Jesus says this is one commandment? It's because this one commandment transcends all the law. This word is agape. This word is charity. If you have true Christian charity, you don't need the law. Because if you have true Christian charity to your brothers and sisters in Christ or the lost people around you, you're not going to murder them. You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to want what they have. You're going to respect your parents. True Christian charity is what he's talking about. It is the signature characteristic of Christianity. You... Um, could consider it a badge, uh, kind of a, a badge that people can see, but they can't see. This badge is not your doctrinal, doctrinal statement. I've seen churches that had on their sign, fundamental, independent, Bible-believing, King James Version, nary piece of literature, Baptist church. Independent. Can't get along with ourselves, much less anybody else. Yeah, I've seen all kinds of church signs. It's not your doctrinal statement. It's not the types of hymns you prefer. And boy, that pains me to say that. Now I'm telling you. That pains me to say that. But it's a fact. It's not the rituals we observe. It's not our soul winning zeal, and that kind of pains me to say that as well. It's not our personal standards. It's not our church building. Now, I don't want to minimize our doctrinal position. I don't want to minimize the fact that we're independent Baptists. We're separatist Baptists. I don't want to minimize that. That's important. It's important that you go soul winning. But that's not the signature characteristic of Christianity. Loving, being charitable to everybody around you. That is the signature characteristic of Christianity. That's essential to the Christian home. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and You've got that already, I think. And uh, so I'll turn over there myself. 
It says, though I speak with tongues of men and angels and have not charity and have become a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal, and though I have, and on and on and on he goes, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now, we know that the Corinthian church was the, 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 the textbook example of carnal Christianity. I mean, bless their heart. Uh, I hate it that they were like they were, but I'm kind of glad they were because it reads my title every time I get drifting, you know. And if I want to know where I am, if I think I'm carnal, I just need to go to Corinthians and start reading. Like old John Rice used to say, uh, I was sitting in a, a question and answer se uh, session in Bible college, and somebody asked him, said, Brother Rice, how do you read your Bible? He said, I pick it up in the morning, I get someplace quiet, and I read it until God blesses my soul. And oh, he said, by the way, sometimes at night, I open up my pajamas and slip it inside my heart, by my heart, and I lay there and sleep like a baby all night, cuddled the Word of God. I mean, it was precious to him. It was precious to him. But that's not the signature characteristic of Christianity. It's agape. It's, and people say, well, agape, that's God's love. That's unconditional love. Uh, that don't say half of it. There are four or five words in the old languages that are translated into English, always translated love. Except here in the King James Bible, it's translated charity. And if you do an etymology to that word, you will find that that word means exactly that. There's not one mention of an emotion in it. God so was so charitable to us that he gave us his son. That says more than that God loved us and gave us his son. I mean, you can, you can love me all day long, but if I'm hungry, I need a hamburger. You can love me all day long, but if I'm lost, I need a savior. I need to know about Jesus Christ. I need somebody that even though I stink and even though I'm ugly and I'm fat and all those things, it, it, you... You need to overcome all that and be charitable to me and give me the gospel. Look what it says. Now, these carnal Corinthians, boy, they loved spiritual gifts. Uh, that kind of kicked them up a notch. If they could heal somebody or, or prophesy something and it come true, uh, they liked it. And he goes through all that in the 12th chapter, and he winds it up. And he says, covet earnestly the best gifts, yet I show unto thee a more excellent way. Better than spiritual gifts? That's charity. Look what he says. Over and he goes through all through charity, and he says, Now these spiritual gifts will hang around till the Bible's complete. That's a 
paraphrased version. And he gets down to 30, uh, 13, and he says, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity, agape, charity. Now, if we went back through all that the Bible says concerning that Jerusalem church, you would find that they were always in one place of one mind. They were always sharing everything they had with everybody else. They were always seeing about somebody that was crippled or somebody that was blind or somebody that needed some kind of help. They were always seeing about that. But just in case that's not convincing enough, turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we see 1 Corinthians 13 all over, but in different language. He says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same agape, the same charity, being of one accord, one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Now, <clears throat> tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, I'm not in the pipeline like I used to be to hear all the gossip when I was pastoring. Call up, Pastor, did you hear so-and-so? Did you hear this? Did you hear that? I'm kind of glad I'm not in that because it always involved strife and vainglory. Did you hear that the Lutherans are splitting over this or the Methodists are splitting over that or the Southern Baptists are out in California trying to decide this or that or the other? I, whew, that's tiring, man. Strife and vainglory does not accomplish the Word of God. Church fights do not. I've heard people say, well, it's, that split was a bad thing, but it turned out good because you got a church over here and a church over here and you got two preachers preaching. No, 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 no. No. They had 30,000 members in Jerusalem, that little old town on top of that hill. They didn't need a split to win souls. No. We, we have ways, we have ways, in Matthew especially, for settling differences. And it doesn't involve strife and vainglory. Even there it says if they don't vote your way, just eat it and go on. Get over it, as the preacher said last Sunday. Get over it. That's, that's got to be in here somewhere. That's a great statement. Get over it. Could it be that Christian colleges could get along without fighting? Internally and externally. Could it be that mission boards 
and church staffs could do a better job if they followed this charity business. Could that be? Could it be the husbands and wives, if they practice, both of them practice charity one toward another, could we have better homes, you think? Just one law. Love one another. Just one law. One thing. Some years back, when I was pastoring, I told my deacons, I said, quit counting the congregation. We don't want to even know how many people we have. Because if somebody asks me, I'll say, I don't know. You can get sucked into a competition on numbers, and you wind up with strife and vainglory and pride. Oh, they didn't, you know, the Holy Spirit of God was counting them in Jerusalem. The people wasn't going around, well, I got 5,000 more. Oh, we multiplied them this time. I can't see them doing that. You know what it was? They loved each other. They loved each other. We need to repent and ask God to forgive us and study this business of Christian charity and see if we can't get at it. You don't start that from the top down. That starts in your home. Men, you need to love your wives. You need to be charitable. If she's having a bad day, charitable means you don't get mad at her. The Bible says that. Don't be angry with your wife. Don't do it. Ladies, you need to treat your husbands like that, too. You're going to run slam into each other, both of you trying to be good to each other. It won't be a bad wreck, either. It'll be a pretty good one, I guarantee you. Come to church and love somebody. Be charitable to them. Be kind to them. There is nothing better than charity. Because you know what? Christianity, it's not only the signature characteristic of Christianity, it's the unique characteristic of Christianity. Go to the mosque and see if you get charity. Go to the Buddhist and see if you get charity. Go to the Hindus and see if you get charity. Go to the secularists and see how charitable they are. Mm -hmm. Come into God's house and meet the warm, loving, kind, greeting of charitable people. Some time ago, my wife and I were visiting a church. We fully intended to be members there. I pulled up a little early because she wasn't feeling good, didn't make it that day. Two of the deacons were standing on the front porch of the church, three or four steps down. And I parked in the visitor spot. And here came this little black dog. She looked like a, a lab, but she's about a little bit bigger than a beagle. Here she came. <laughs> 
Dun, 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 her tail going around and around and around. And big smile on her face. You could just tell she was smiling. And boom, she sat down and stuck her hand up like that. And I said, well, glad to meet you, lady. And I shook her hand, and she held up the other one. I shook her hand, and I looked up there at those deacons. I said, you seeing this? God sent this illustration through this little black dog to teach you deacons how to meet, greet people when they come to church. Pastor? 